Musk derangement syndrome. Twitter goes to war again. As the new owner of Twitter, Elon Musk is, to quote Ben Shapiro, moving fast and breaking things. He could see a big problem, as anyone outside the media feedback loop can. Twitter had become not just the propaganda arm of the state, but was being used as a filter to dodge the First Amendment to police thought and speech. They didn't do it directly or overtly. They did it alongside enthusiastic good soldiers for the state. The users, the blue checks, and the employees saw themselves as the hashtag resistance. To them, banning Trump was spiking their flag at Iwo Jima. They won, or so they thought. After the latest dump of Twitter files was released by Barry Weiss, showing a clear connection between the FBI and Twitter in their efforts to both suppress the Hunter Biden laptop story and censor and ultimately ban a sitting president, it was clear that the former management of Twitter and its former owner were on the ropes. This was the biggest tech story in 10 years, and the media went dark. Why? They're the dogs that aren't barking, that's why. They were complicit in everything that happened on Twitter, because they are Twitter. Without Twitter, there can be no cancel culture. It is their Roman Colosseum, their panopticon for surveillance. And yes, it's their ministry of love, their ministry of truth, and their ministry of peace. Without Twitter, they're just a bunch of do-nothings, drunk on their own power as they pull the lever for the dopamine hit, like slot machine junkies at 2 a.m. in Vegas. Someday all of this will be embarrassing for all concerned. The process is always the same. Twitter throws a fit because someone broke a rule somewhere, was accused of something, or taunted them. This was the Tom Cotton essay at the New York Times, the firing of Gina Carano from Disney. They tried and failed to pressure Spotify to drop Joe Rogan and for Netflix to drop Dave Chappelle. This was Al Franken being witch-hunted out of the Democratic Party. This was Donald McNeil losing his job at the New York Times. This was David Shore also losing his job. Barry Weiss, James Bennett, Andrew Sullivan, Walter Kern, Katie Herzog, Jesse Single, Glenn Greenwald, Freddie Dubor. The best of them, the smartest, all exiled to the outer region. They're mostly fine with it, doing far better now than they ever were. But this isn't about them. This is about Twitter and what it has done to our sense of each other, our sense of ourselves, and our rights under the Constitution. Those who dominate Twitter probably didn't think Elon Musk would ever actually buy it, and set about dismantling their blue-check hierarchy, and casually mocking their strident rules of language, specifically pronouns, when he joked, My pronouns are prosecute Fauci. Musk's more serious crime, according to them, was freeing the dissidents banned to the outer regions, People like Dr. Robert Malone, Jordan Peterson, and yes, Donald Trump. They weren't being thrown in gulags, although that doesn't seem to be too far off. But they were tainted all the same, as thought criminals who violated the ordinung. That meant any corporation, or bank, or entertainment company had the right to drop them as a client once Twitter deemed their image and reputation toxic. We're watching in real time an attempt to bring down Elon Musk, Cancel culture style, with Twitter users working alongside the media to create a climate of fear around him, destroy his credibility, and dismantle his power. 
They are trying to make his brand toxic enough that advertisers drop their support. Users abandon the platform like Elton John. Then maybe Musk will bow down to the mighty blue checks. They are writing their own version of him, just like they did with Trump and anyone else who got in their way. Twitter controls the media, so now they have taken on the Get Musk directive, shamefully displaying their obedience to blue check Twitter. Late night comedians too, Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, and John Oliver, are now shifting into gear to help the hashtag resistance destroy another non-compliant alpha male. Christmas morning came early for the Empire when Musk was booed at a Dave Chappelle show. He was cheered, too. But the media won't report that. Too inconvenient. Their narrative has to be that he is failing. See, they see. The public hates him. They're so mad that their power has been taken from them that they won't stop until they have wrecked Musk's businesses. For podcast listeners, we're looking at a graphic that's a Google search of headlines, and they say, Chappelle audience members explain why they booed Elon Musk, NBC News. Elon Musk booed by crowd after Dave Chappelle brings him on stage at comedy gigs, CNBC. Elon Musk gets viciously booed by crowd at Dave Chappelle show, Gizmodo. It's hard to watch yet again the same kind of dehumanization, daily obsession, and outright cruelty on display by the good Puritans of the left. I can't stomach it personally. I never could. From Melania's Christmas decorations to Kellyanne Conway's face, Sarah Huckabee Sanders' makeup, Trump's hands, hair, weight, and family, on and on it went. The hatred could power a whole city. Now here we are again. Those same people are showing their true colors because they can't stand losing to Musk. Actor John Cusack is fully on board with Musk's destruction. Typos be damned. We're looking at a tweet from Cusack that says, This will drive him mad. Relentless mockery, shame, ridicule. It's the best thing to do. They pivoted to Nazis. And Alexander Vindman, Twitter is dying. That's okay. If anything needs to be killed off soonest. Elon Musk cannot be allowed to promote dangerous radical views, hate speech. Imagine Goebbels with a bigger platform and wider reach. They pivoted to racism. Cheryl and Eiffel. It's deliberate, a white guy raised in apartheid South Africa with no anti-apartheid bona fides to his name, co-ops, misstates, and distorts a concept of racial accountability in South Africa for his right-wing fantastical ends. They're just words to him. And it's a tweet from Musk saying, truth brings reconciliation. John Dean, who once wore the crown of decency for decades after Watergate, is now in the corner sucking his thumb and waiting for one of Obama's reliable lawyer cops to fly in and rescue him. There's a tweet from John Dean that says, I am looking for a lawyer, law firm, that will file a class action against Musk. For many of us who were here long before he arrived, he has ruined Twitter in too many ways to explain in a tweet. (laughs) Okay. What toddlers they are, celebrating Musk's businesses taking a hit as they do everything they can with legacy media doing their bidding in an attempt to discredit and destroy what Musk has built for himself. I know it can't compare to hiding behind an anonymous Twitter account and pulling the lever for brain drugs, but Musk's accomplishments are many. Theirs are few. Looking at a tweet from The Horse Whisperer, it says, Oh, just another $25 billion in shareholder value up in flames. I wonder when Tesla shareholders are going to file their first lawsuit about Musk tanking the stock. And there's an image of Tesla stock dropping. 
Billy Baldwin has somehow taken his non-career and reimagined it as a big fish on Twitter. These people supposedly see the climate as the biggest threat facing humanity, yet take away their plaything, the first thing they toss aside is the most popular electric cars. And here's Billy Baldwin. Retweet if your pronouns are boycott Tesla. And then John Lovett. Imagine having a personality so bad it makes people sell their cars. They pivoted to full-blown authoritarianism, but all behind a cheerful face and a blue check. We're looking at a graphic from a user named Erica Marsh, a blue check. Her banner photo is of her smiling, and behind it says, Vote Blue. She's a proud Democrat, former field organizer to elect President Biden, volunteer for the Obama Foundation, she, her, Blue Heart, Gen Z. Erica Marsh tweets, Breaking, President Biden says that Elon Musk's cooperation and relationships with Russia, China, and Saudi Arabia are, quote, worthy of being looked at. RT if you agree with President Biden. Then she says, breaking, prominent attorneys are investigating whether Elon Musk lied on his application for U.S. citizenship. If it shows that he lied anywhere on the application, it's likely he could be stripped of his U.S. citizenship and deported. Another tweet says, if you supported the Supreme Court confirmations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett, but not Ketanji Brown Jackson, you're a racist. And another tweet, how can the DOJ arrest Sam Bankman-Fried lightning fast, but they can't arrest Donald Trump after years of investigations? Retweet if you want the DOJ to arrest Trump. They want him arrested, they want him deported, they want Twitter back, or they'll throw a Veruca Salt-style tantrum. And a tweet from Walter Kern that says, an authoritarian society can be erected on the pretext of defending against almost any type of danger. Leave it to modern America to choose the threat of hurt feelings. History will not be kind. The media uses their prestige and their reach to huff and puff about this or that, making it all seem very real. But I've been online since 1994. I was here before Twitter, and I can tell you with 100% certainty that none of it is real. It is all smoke and mirrors. They can try to destroy Musk if they want, but they still have to answer for what they've done, creating a generation of young adults who are either too fragile to survive the real world or are fanatics ready to burn the whole country down just to get their way. Musk, like Trump, is a good father. He knows his job is to toughen up the young so they can survive all of the big things we know are coming. Words are harm. Words are violence. Try the bombing of London. Try Hiroshima. Try Syria. They need to learn what many of us older people already know. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. We already have one generation that has come of age entirely online, with smartphones in their hands. They've been monitored and tracked from birth. The corporations know what they read, what they eat, what they buy, where they go, when they shop, and when they scroll. This is a moment that requires understanding what the real fight is about. It isn't really about Twitter. It's about what kind of country this will be going forward, as every generation from now on will come of age online. Defeating this information monopoly must be the top priority. There are alpha voices that the young are paying attention to. Ben Shapiro is one of them. Here he outlines why the Twitter files matter when it comes to the treatment of former President Trump. So here's what Barry Weiss says, quote, 
On the morning of January 8th, President Donald Trump, with one remaining strike before being at risk of permanent suspension from Twitter, tweeted twice. First, he tweeted, the 75,000 great American patriots who voted for me, America first, and make America great again, will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. And then he tweeted again about an hour later, to all those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. Barry Weiss says, for years, Twitter had resisted calls of both internal and external to ban Trump on the grounds that blocking a world leader from the platform or removing their controversial tweets would hide important information that people should be able to see in debate. They said, for example, quote, our mission is to provide a forum that enables people to be informed and to engage their leaders directly. This is in 2019. Twitter said that its aim was, quote, to protect the public's right to hear from their leaders and to hold them to account. But after January 6th, Pressure grew both inside and outside of Twitter to ban Trump. There were dissenters inside of Twitter. In fact, one of the dissenters was from China and said, quote, I deeply understand how censorship can destroy the public conversation. But voices like that one appeared to have been a distinct minority within the company. Across Slack channels, many Twitter employees were upset Trump hadn't been banned earlier. After January 6th, says Barry Weiss, Twitter employees organized to demand their employer ban Trump. There's a lot of employee advocacy happening, said one Twitter employee. And, and again, there's this inside-outside game that gets played at a lot of corporations these days where you have left-leaning corporate executives who still feel bound by corporate dictates and by the dictates of the market, but they get pressure from the bottom, from their employees, and they say, well, we have to please our employees. The purple-haired intern with seven earrings, a nose ring, and a face tattoo, we have to, we have to make sure that that person is very pleased with us. Here's the way a normal company works. If my employees here at Daily Wire decided that they did not like the editorial direction of the company and decided that they were going to be very angry and yell about it, well, they have two choices. They can either come to work and do their work or they can leave. There's no third choice where they get to run the editorial direction of the company. That's not how any of this works. But apparently at a lot of these big tech companies, they decided, and this is because, again, they sympathize with their own employees, that they use the whining of their employees as an excuse to do what they wanted to do in the first place, which is to ban Trump. One staffer said, we have to do the right thing and ban this account. Quote, it's pretty obvious he's going to try to thread the needle of incitement without violating the rules. In the early afternoon of January 8th, Barry Weiss reveals, the Washington Post published an open letter signed by over 300 Twitter employees to CEO Jack Dorsey demanding Trump's ban. We must examine Twitter's complicity in what President-elect Biden has rightly termed insurrection. Now again, if my employees decided that they were going to write a letter, like an open letter, and sign it with their names to the New York Times criticizing the editorial policy of this company, the door is right there. They can leave anytime they choose. But that's not what Jack Dorsey and Twitter did. The Twitter staff assigned to evaluate tweets quickly concluded Trump had not violated Twitter's policies. Quote, I think we'd have a hard time saying this is incitement, wrote one staffer. It's pretty clear he's saying the American patriots are the ones who voted for him, not the terrorists. We can call them that, right, from Wednesday. Another staffer agreed, quote, don't see the incitement angle here. A Twitter policy official named Anika Navaroli said, I'm not seeing clear or coded incitement in the Donald J. Trump tweet. I'll respond in the elections channel and say our team has assessed and found no violations for the DJT one. And then she did that. She says safety has assessed the tweet above and determined there is no violation of our policies at this time. Later, Navaroli would testify to the House January 6th committee for months. I'd been begging and anticipating and attempting to raise the reality that if nothing, if we made no intervention into what I saw occurring, people were going to die. Then Twitter's safety team decided that Trump's tweet is also not in violation. His later tweet was not in violation. They said it's a clear no bio. It's just to say he's not attending the inauguration. Barry Weiss says, to understand Twitter's decision to ban Trump, we must consider how Twitter deals with other heads of state and political leaders, including in Iran, Nigeria, and Ethiopia. So, for example, in June 2018, Iran's Ayatollah Ali Khamenei tweeted, quote, Israel is a malignant cancerous tumor in the West Asian region that has to be removed and eradicated. It is possible and it will happen. Twitter, didn't, Twitter did not delete the tweet and they didn't ban the Ayatollah. In October 2020, the former Malaysian prime minister said it was a right for Muslims to kill millions of French people. Twitter deleted his tweet for glorifying violence. 
but he remained on the platform. Mohamed Buhari, the president of Nigeria, incited violence against pro-Biafra groups. Quote, those of us in the fields for 30 months who went through the war will treat them in the language they understand. Twitter deleted that tweet, but they didn't ban Buhari. In October 2021, Twitter allowed Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to call on citizens to take up arms against the Tigray region. Twitter allowed the tweet to remain up and didn't ban the prime minister. In early February 2021, Prime Minister Narendra Modi's government threatened to arrest Twitter employees in India and to incarcerate them for up to seven years after they restored hundreds of accounts that had been critical of him and Twitter didn't ban Modi. But Twitter executives did ban Trump, even though key staffers said Trump had not incited violence, not even in a coded way. Less than 90 minutes after Twitter employees had determined that Trump's tweets were not in violation of Twitter policy, Vijaya Gaddy, Twitter's head of legal policy and trust, asked whether it could, in fact, be coded incitement to further violence. A few minutes later, Twitter employees on the scaled enforcement team suggested Trump's tweet may have violated Twitter's glorification of violence policy if you interpreted the phrase American patriots to refer to the rioters. And then things escalated from there. Members of that same safety and trust team came to, quote, view him as the leader of a terrorist group responsible for violence and deaths comparable to Christchurch shooter or Hitler. And on that basis and on the totality of his tweets, he should be deplatformed. So Donald Trump tweeted out, just to get this straight, that the, that the American patriots would not be denied and that he wouldn't be going to the inauguration. And this made him comparable to Hitler, according to Twitter employees. And so he had to be banned on that basis. Two hours after that, Twitter executives hosted a 30-minute all-staff meeting. Jack Dorsey and Jaya Gaddy answered staff questions as to why Trump had not yet been banned. But some employees got angrier. Yoel Roth, who again is one of the bad guys in this whole story, relayed to a colleague, quote, multiple tweets, that'd be Twitter employees, have quoted the banality of evil, suggesting that people implementing our policies are like Nazis following orders. So in other words, allowing Donald Trump to remain on the platform, that is like Nazis following orders. Dorsey requested simpler language to explain why Trump would be suspended. And Roth wrote, God help us. This makes me think he wants to share it publicly. <laughs> oh, you mean you mean you should have to share publicly why you were banning the sitting president of the United States from Twitter? And Yoel Roth is mad about this? Interesting stuff. One hour later, Twitter announced Trump's permanent suspension, quote, due to the risk of further incitement of violence. Many at Twitter was, were ecstatic and congratulatory. By the next day, employees expressed eagerness to tackle medical misinformation as soon as possible, because this is the way that it works. If you feed the alligator, the alligator continues to eat. And so they immediately decided, who can we go after next? Who can we ban next? For the longest time, Twitter's stance was that we aren't the arbiter of truth, wrote another employee, which I respected, but never gave me a warm, fuzzy feeling. And that's what this is all about. It's about giving the left warm, fuzzy feelings. Twitter CEO Parag Agarwal, who would later succeed Dorsey as CEO, told head of security Mudge Zakko, who, of course, later would leave and become a whistleblower, suggesting that the company had become not an engineering company for, for free speech, but instead had essentially become a left-wing outlet that, that ignored security concerns. Agarwal said, quote, I think a few of us should brainstorm the ripple effects of Trump's ban. And Agarwal, said it, Agarwal added, centralized content moderation, in my opinion, has reached a breaking point now. Again, internationally, there are a lot of people who are very critical of the banning of Trump. Ultimately, says Barry Weiss, the concerns about Twitter's efforts to censor news about Hunter Biden's laptop, blacklist dis disfavored views, and ban a president aren't about the past choices of executives in a social media company. They're about the power of a handful of people at a private company to influence the public discourse and democracy, which, of course, is exactly the point. Matt Taibbi, one of the journalists that broke the story, has continually lamented the loss of ethics in journalism. They used to care. Why did they stop caring? Is it just fear of Twitter? Alternative media is growing. Barry Weiss has just launched the free press. And Substack is full of voices challenging the media narrative. Companies now know 
that their audiences will forgive them for making mistakes as long as the mistakes are in the right direction. Right. As long as it's ideologically correct. As long as it's ideologically correct. So there was a whole generation of reporters who were who were raised like me. Like uh, our whole thing was the night before we published something, we we couldn't sleep. Because we were afraid of that one thing that would be fucked up in the in the report yeah. that somebody would catch the next day, and that might end your career, right? Like if you got something really, really badly wrong, it was potentially a career-ending thing, especially if you if you made some kind of ethical mistake and forgetting to check something. Um, so that terror was was common to all reporters until recently. Now all of a sudden, when you make a really, really bad mistake, no, your audience is probably going to be fine with it. They don't punish you for it in the same way. And they've basically brought in a whole generation of people who have this ethos of, well, if I make – so what if it's wrong? You know, which is which is why all these people no longer have faith in these companies. And, and they can't see it. It's amazing that they can't see it. They But people are leaving these companies. They're, they're no longer trusting them. And they don't see that correlation, which is incredible to me. It's very strange, but again, it fuels this thing that I think is very good, which is trustworthy, independent media. Future generations will be digging through the archives to understand and sort through how so many went along with government censorship, dehumanization of the non-compliant, whatever else our media, social media, and government is suppressing that we have the right to know. Will there be class action lawsuits against doctors and maybe parents for the long-term health effects of lockdowns, gender reassignment surgery, or the steady stream of meds they're foisting on kids to get them hooked for life? What about raising children into gender confusion in elementary schools so parents can raise their clout on social media? What about the heavy burden of teaching kids they are born as oppressors and oppressed? What about the elimination of the meritocracy? COVID is going to be a big one. If the media talked about nothing else, they should have reported on the shadow banning and censorship of Dr. J. Bhattacharya. That is a much bigger story than Twitter throwing yet another fit over Elon Musk's mocking pronouns. History will not be kind. Now is the aforementioned Dr. J. Bhattacharya, Stanford University professor of medicine. Dr. Bhattacharya, your reaction tonight, this is blockbuster after learning that you were secretly placed on this trends blacklist. Yeah, it feels like some novel from the 1950s where um, the House Un-American uh, you know, committee is like meeting to to, uh, to decide uh, who to who to suppress. And, and I, I'm some sort of like movie star from in Hollywood that they're blacklisting because I'm a communist or something. Uh, it's ridiculous. And it really hurt public health. If we'd had an open discussion, Laura, the schools would not have closed in the fall of 2020. If we had an open discussion, the lockdowns would have been lifted much earlier because the data and evidence behind them was so bad. Twitter, by suppressing scientific discussion, harmed science, harmed children, and harmed the American public. Uh, and I really do wonder uh, how I ended up on a black. I joined Twitter in 2021, in September 2021. Who, who told Twitter to put me on a blacklist? I really want to know. Uh, and it's, it's also telling, Laura, instead of arguing over facts, they use these techniques because they knew their arguments were not strong enough to survive the light of day. Uh, I, I mean, it, it's um, I, I really just don't know how to like process it. I mean, I, I grew up in the U.S. I was, I was born in India, grew up in the U.S. since I was f four. I've always thought about the United States as a free country. 
Uh, but it really hasn't felt that way these last three years. Um, and I think uh, now we're starting to see wh what the parameters of that are. I think we really need to have a, a national conversation that brings us back to the American commitment to free speech rights, the American commitment to to open discussion and, uh, and, and sort of honest dealings. And I think uh, the Silicon Valley Twitter uh, crowd, I mean, I, I think they behave very badly. But I, I wonder, Laura, if this actually is at the direction of the American government, it, then we have an even broader discussion to talk about than, than th just Silicon. We could dive through the archives and find Jamie Raskin interrogating Jay Bhattacharya on the Great Barrington Declaration. At the time, no doubt, many in the media and in public were on Raskin's side. But listening back now, a year later... After everything we know about the failure of cloth masks, how the vaccine didn't stop the COVID spread, and what happened to a generation of young people needlessly locked down, not to mention what might turn out to be long-term health effects from the vaccine. Well, let, let me, at the end, I can. I just got to get through a couple of things. Your meeting took place just one day after your Great Barrington Declaration was published, and Azar tweeted after the meeting that you had provided strong reinforcement of the Trump administration's administration's strategy of aggressively protecting the vulnerable while opening schools in the workplace. Um, have you read Deborah Burke's, uh, Trump, uh, Trump's coronavirus response coordinator's statements about how the Trump administration's lethargic and indifferent response to COVID-19 could have cost hundreds of thousands of lives? Have you read, uh, have you read her she statements? Made that claim. I'm sorry? I've seen that she made that claim. Yeah. Um, in, in my mind, she told CNN, almost 450,000 deaths could have been mitigated or decreased substantially. In other words, the kinds of policies that you implicitly gave credence to with your Great Barrington Declaration resulted, according to Donald Trump's own coronavirus coordinator, in the deaths of at least more than 100,000 people. And I, I wonder if you would just respond uh, to that statement coming from Deborah Burks. Sure. So first, uh, it's related to the answer that I had to your previous question. The New York Times just reported today that 100,000 people died of drug overdoses. That was a lockdown harm. There was an estimate in the, the JAMA in, uh, Pediatrics that we, as a result of just the spring school shutdown, we co cost our children five and a half million life years. COVID is not the only harm that we need to account for. No, those were the result of COVID and the fact that we let the disease run wild. So that no, just sorry, compounds the original sin. Those, 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 many places, there are places that did not close schools. Sweden, for instance, didn't close schools. No child deaths between 1 and 15. And teachers had COVID rates at lower rates than the rest of the population. Um, it's not true to say that those are a result of COVID. Those are a result okay. of policy My final question, I'm afraid out of, out of time. Do, do you still oppose mask mandates when people are um, in public places? Uh, so I, the, I never opposed mask mandates during the, the pandemic. I said that, in fact, we're arguing very strongly in favor of them, using them in nursing homes and other places. I am against ch uh, mask mandates in schools. Okay. I yield back, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Raskin is exactly the wrong kind of leader. He sounds like the Oyer and Terminer in Salem, demanding Bhattacharya confess as a witch and live. If we can't talk about these things, we leave future generations lost, confused, and twisting in the wind. A small but loud cabal of tweeners set about ordering the chaos of coming of age in the lawless frontier of the internet. They created a new religion on Tumblr in 2013, now it's being foisted upon all of us, with the media and government on board. 
Those who participated in silencing dissent and the suppression of facts should start preparing now, because the internet is written in ink. There will be a reckoning on those who stood by and did nothing, and the weakest among us will be called upon to explain themselves. And what will they say? That they helped get Trump banned from Twitter? That they destroyed SpaceX and Tesla? I think they better come up with something much better than that. Thank you for listening to my Substack, sashastone.substack.com. And remember, to thine own self, be true. There's a leak in this boat. Someone tossed me a rope. And a headrest for my, headrest for my soul. Someone